0: meal. As I say a few words of gratitude. First to the adult studies committee chaired by Joanne Ratliff and Max Arender for planning this year's lecture series. Thank you for all the work that you have put into what has already been a delightful time. We also want to extend a word of gratitude to Catherine Davis and her kitchen crew for the delicious meal that we are all enjoying. And finally to the doctors Sheridan, uh, Kay, and Buddy for coming to be with us this weekend. Following his nearly 25-year tenure as Callaway Professor of Christianity at Mercer University, where he was also Chair of the Department of Religion, Dr. Walter Sheridan, retired in 2007, and now carries the title of Minister at Large at Mercer University. Dr. Sheridan has written and edited 17 books and published numerous articles, some of which were required reading for my own seminary education. Kay and Buddy are native Mississippians, and we are glad that you have decided to come home this weekend and spend it with us. Uh, we are talking about 550, celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation and the 50th anniversary of our beloved Northminster. So in a moment, we will have a retroactive blessing for our meal, after which Dr. Sheridan will come to present his final lecture in our series, What the Protestants and the Catholics Got Right, eventually and I don't even know how to say that word. Episodically. Episodically, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) All right, please join your hearts with mine in prayer. Gracious God, thank you for the gift of this weekend, for the sounds and silences of this sacred space in which we gather. Thank you for the wonderful meal that we are enjoying. We ask your blessing on all those who prepared it from the ground to our tables. And we ask that you would fill us through this time of study and fellowship so that we might go out into the world to be your people, bringing your light to all whom we meet. In Jesus' name, amen. Dr. Sherton. <laughs>
1: Well, certainly we want to thank you for the invitation of being here. It's been a just been a fun weekend for us to be back and to be in your wonderful church, uh, hear that marvelous marvelous choir this morning. Uh, I told Chuck I could be a member of this church and just leave right after the anthem. <laughs> I can I can read his sermons online, you know. <laughs> And as I said, it doesn't take long anyway, so <laughs> not much trouble. Uh, give me a few minutes to do something I don't usually do, and that is to read when I'm supposed to be lecturing, because I don't, I don't like to do that. But uh, some of this I need to say exactly like I want to say. On yesterday afternoon, uh, for those of you who are not here, I use Michael Novak's metaphor of the flight of the dove. He wrote this book entitled Ascent of the Mountain and Flight of the Dove. Uh, it's, a, it's an old book now. Uh, but uh, by the way, I, uh, Kelly gave me an obituary the other day, just today, that uh, Michael Novak died just recently. But I have lived with that book for years. It's called Ascent of the Mountain and Flight of the Dove. And I used his metaphor, the flight of the dove, to speak of the untamable grace of God in our lives and the many different ways that God gets our attention. Uh, I tried to make the point yesterday afternoon that we give in to being loved by God in vastly different ways and that we ought not to uh, hold up as a norm uh, Martin Luther's experience or anybody else's experience. Uh, And then of course this morning I spoke of the Ascent of the Mountain and I suggested uh, that the Catholics got something right in the Reformation, that the Christian life is not only about God's grace freely given but also about an unending struggle on our part to follow and a resolve to obey. Uh, I tried to say both yesterday and today because I wanted to underscore the fact that I am a, I am a saved by grace kind of guy. Uh, but of course, I have, I have learned over the years that uh, a single experience, a single moment, a single decision is is just a launching pad for the Christian life. And so it is a kind of unending struggle. The metaphor for today changes, uh, and I want to talk about the descent into the valley. And here we're talking about giving back because of love. We give in to being loved. That's the flight of the dove. We give up to the demands of love, and that's the ascent of the mountain, but we also give back because of love. Love cannot keep itself to itself. Today we're focused on what good and grace-filled things happen to us and for us, but what gracious things we make happen for others we're talking not about the grace we receive, but the grace we give back. To hoard love is to sin against the very love that has claimed us. And it appears to be a law of life that love that is not shared atrophies and dies. I really believe that. That people who for any whatever reason get launched into the faith and become part of the church, if if there is not some process of giving back what they have received, uh, I think the spiritual life shrivels um, and even dies. Uh, A a few years ago, about three or four years ago, my wife, Kay, uh, who is a better theologian than I am, uh, seriously. Uh, She was tutoring a little African-American girl in uh, Macon, uh, teaching, helping her learn how to read and become better at reading in the public schools. And she had done it for several weeks with this young girl, and I think she was in about the seventh grade. And she asked Kay one day if she could come to our church with her. Our church is not nearly as Episcopalian as yours, but we're, we're, we're pretty buttoned up at our place. You would never hear an amen. Um, we, we almost never applaud in church, and if somebody starts it, you know they've not been there very long.
2: <laughs>
1: so, but anyway, it's a, it's a great church. Um, like yours. And so uh, we know the glory of Patra at our place and the doxology, and we do all we do all that kind of thing. And so this little little girl came to church with Kay and me. And she brought two or three of her friends. And so we had gotten about halfway through this pretty slick worship service that we have over there. And this little girl leaned over to Kay and said, Miss Kay. Does anybody ever get the Holy Ghost here?
2: <laughs> well,
1: you know, I, I understood the question. Uh, I don't mind a little Pentecostal fervor every now and then. Um, I knew what she was asking uh, when she asked that question. But it made me think, How do you know when you get the Holy Ghost? How do you know when the Spirit of God invades your life and claims you? How do you know that? Is it a is it an ecstatic experience? And I thought about that sermon Jesus preached, the first sermon he ever preached in his hometown of Nazareth. And he began that sermon by saying, you, you remember that sermon in Luke 4, he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because... How do you finish that sentence? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because... How do you know when the Spirit of the Lord is upon you? I think that's a serious question. How do you know when the Spirit of the Lord is upon you? How did Jesus finish that sentence? Here's what he said. He said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of jubilee. You don't need a seminary degree to interpret that text. The message is simple. Compassion, compassion is the central and controlling idea upon whom the Holy Spirit comes. When you get the Holy Ghost, to use that little girl's words, You begin to see life with a different vision. You begin to care about different things. Um, Sympathies are enlarged, conscience is sensitized, care is extended, and love finds an outlet in a suffering world. Listen to that list. The poor the prisoners, the blind, the oppressed. We would make a serious mistake if we took that literally. The point, and it's an Old Testament text that Jesus is quoting, by the way, and the point is not to simply make a list, but to make us aware that the controlling idea of living the Christian life is that of compassion. And this is, Luke 4, is no political agenda. This is not a political agenda hatched up by left-leaning politicians in Washington. And this is no sociological agenda dreamed up by social workers. This is a theological agenda, and it comes straight from the words of our Lord. This is how you know. When the Spirit claims your life, you begin to care, and compassion has to find an outlet.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, that's the introduction I ought to give an invitation about right now, but I don't <laughs> think I <want. laughs> How many of you know the name of Malcolm Gladwell? You know that name? You read some, some of his stuff. Well, you know, he wrote this book called Blink, B-L-I-N-K. It's, it's a marvelous little book. It, it, all of his books are marvelous little books. But he's got this book called Blink. And in the book, he says, uh, one of the clearest ways of understanding what is right and true and honest is something you can usually just tell and Blink. You don't have to analyze it or spend a lot of time or go to seminary or get a PhD. Usually, you can tell what is right in a blink. Well, he he used the term thin slicing. I, I just love the word. He said what you do is thin slice your experiences in life, and, and you can see in a blink what it is. And I believe that's exactly what Jesus did when that lawyer came to him and he asked him, you know, what what is the greatest commandment of all? Jesus took 2,000 years of religious experience, he took all of those religious traditions of Judaism, and he thin sliced it, and you remember what he said. It, It was simple, love God, love neighbor, and and you got it, thin slicing. Now, some of the people in Jesus' name were thick slicers, and they didn't like it because Jesus thin sliced. And so they would say, yeah, but what about washing your hands before you eat? What about keeping the Sabbath? And they started naming all these beliefs, and Jesus kept coming back in his life to say, this is what really matters. Loving God and loving neighbor. Well, let me turn now to the Reformation. You thought I'd never get to it. And I'm not going to stay with it long. But let me tell you what I think both the Catholics and the Protestants got wrong for 500 years. And I must tell you that this was sort of a discovery I made in preparation for these these, uh, presentations here. I'm glad that Chuck and your committee gave me a year to read about all of this because when I started reading again the Reformation, which I had read many times in my life, I began to see something that I had never really clearly seen before. And I think I'm right about it. not sure. But it's this, that part of what they got wrong in the Reformation was that they were arguing over beliefs. They were arguing over ideas. They were arguing over intellectual formulations. What did they argue over? They argued over how to be saved. Is it works or is it grace? They argued over how do you know when you're right? Well, you know when you're right because the Pope says so, or you know you're right because your conscience says so. The Protestants said With Martin Luther, here I stand. God help me. I can do no other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I know what is true because I feel it. I know it. And then over here, the Catholic said, you you can't do that. You folks are going to end up with as many churches as you have individuals. And they were right. (laughs) I mean, not only how many Christian churches we have, how many different Baptist denominations do we have? You know why? Because the way we determine we're right is by the individual conscience. It can go crazy. And you do need some rail guard somewhere. But do you want the Pope telling you? No. you want the Bishop telling you? you want Chuck telling you? No,
2: no. <laughs>
1: but, but do you see my point? What they were arguing over is how do you know you're right? And they were arguing also over who are the true ministers of Christ. Is it the priesthood or is it, as Martin Luther said, the priesthood of all believers? Cherish Baptist idea, which I love. I just cherish the idea but I realized that they were in a squabble over ideas. I think they were thick slices. Um, And they argued over, of course, the nature of the sacraments, the ordinances. Now, I need to say before I close that section, the more I thought about that, the more I thought, buddy, you're sounding like beliefs don't matter. They do matter. Some beliefs matter more than others, and that's what Jesus was saying. I think part of what happens to us in the religious life is that we argue over ideas rather than the Christian life and what the Christian life is supposed to be like. Now, what they both got right eventually, and it was eventually, And episodically, that is to say they got it right here, and then they got it wrong, and then they got it right again, and then they got it wrong. It it took, and we're still working on it, aren't we? We get it right, we get it wrong. I wish I had time to tell you that after the Reformation occurred, there developed something, well, first of all, right after the Reformation occurred, and Martin Luther died. Uh, his great assistant and associate was a man by the name of Philip Melanchthon and Melanchthon started drawing up all of these confessions of faith think about this here's Luther with this dynamic experience of a sense of acceptance unconditional before God he dies and the next thing that happens is they start arguing over what he said And so they started drawing up these confessions. And then you had one Lutheran group after another, beginning. Missouri Synod, we have now, we have about three major Lutheran groups in this country. If you go up to the Midwest, you'll find lots more Lutheran groups, Swedish, Norwegian, Finnish. They just started multiplying because they started arguing over words intellectual formulations, beliefs, ideas, rather than arguing over, how do we learn to love God? How do we learn to love neighbor? There was a Catholic counter-reformation. It was called, part of it was called the Council of Trent. The Council of Trent uh, met from 1545 to 1563, and it was the Catholic reaction to the Protestant Reformation you know what they did? They drew up documents to say how wrong the Protestants were. Um, The Jesuits were born during that time, they became the vanguard of the counter reformation. Uh, And then they developed right after that, what's known as Protestant scholasticism. Scholasticism was uh, a movement in the high Middle Ages where the theologians really did argue over arcane things. And when Luther came along, I told you yesterday, if you read the 95 Theses, and anybody can read them, and anybody can understand them, they are about the Christian life and how you live it. They're not about theological squabbles. Protestant scholasticism came along and, and dominated the 17th century. There were some good things that happened, but also there were religious wars. After the Reformation, wars began and they did not end until 1648 and the Peace of Westphalia. 1648, 1517, 1648. Well, that was real war, Catholic Protestant war. And at times, Protestant versus Protestant, it more over religious ideas. Is there any, do you know why a lot of people are turning away from religion in our own culture? You do, of course. It's because they say religion is one of the most venomous and conflicting and incendiary issues that we have going. Well, what is it about religions That creates the conflict. I would suggest to you it's ideas. We don't argue over whether or not we ought to love God and love neighbor. We don't try to talk about how we ought to do that. We talk about theological ideas about God. Um, Let me tell you two contemporary examples that I think are getting it right Catholic and Protestant. The first one is Francis the First. I think Pope Francis is one of the greatest gifts to the world, not to the Christian world, but to the world that has come along in a long time. And I haven't said that about a lot of popes. But this man is unusual. And I hope that you will read him and not read about him from some people who criticize him, and I particularly wish that you would read, it's online or you can get it from Amazon, it's his first major speech, and it's called The Joy of the Gospel, The Joy of the Gospel. It is a beautiful, beautiful statement of what Christianity really is and what we ought to be about. I have a quotation here, look at it with me. In the joy of the gospel, Francis I says, uh, an evangelizing community gets involved by word and deed in people's lives. It bridges distances. It is willing to abase itself if necessary, and it embraces human life, touching the suffering flesh of Christ in others evangelizers, thus take on the smell of the sheep." What a beautiful phrase. I, um, I heard a reaction to uh, Francis's document, The Joy of the Gospel, before I read it. In fact, one of the reasons I read it is because it was drawing so much criticism. And when I read it, I thought, these people have not read this document. This is a document about missions. It's a document about what Catholics call evangelization. Uh, you and I would call it witnessing in the social gospel. And in the, in the document, all he is saying is that in order to become somebody who loves neighbor, loves God, we've got to have the joy of the gospel in us. And when you have the joy of the gospel, he says, nobody has to teach you how to go out and love people. If the joy of the gospel is with you. It's a beautiful, beautiful statement. I urge you to read it. That's the, and, and every time I hear Pope Francis speak, I, I think, boy, that's my pope. <laughs> uh, the last pope wasn't my pope. Billy the 16th, we call him. But uh, Pope Francis is, um Well, read him. If you haven't read him, please, please read him. Uh, The the person I want to use as the Protestant example that's getting it right is Brian McLaren. And I know many of you have read, works by Brian McLaren. But if you haven't, uh, Kay and I have, I think, almost all of his books on our bookshelf. This is his best book and it's called The Great Spiritual Migration, How the World's Largest Religion is Seeking a Better Way to be Christian. Um, I, I think most of you will really take to this and enjoy it. What Brian McLaren is saying, and he helped me an awful lot when I was thinking about the Reformation, what Brian McLaren is saying is this. Look at the quotation. What what would it mean for Christians to rediscover their faith not as a problematic system of beliefs but as a just and generous way of life rooted in contemplation and expressed in compassion that makes amends for its mistakes and is dedicated to beloved community for all? Could Christians migrate? from defining their faith as a system of beliefs, expressing it as a way of life. What I'm suggesting to you today is is that as, uh, as Jesus thin sliced in the first century and said the essence of religion is compassion, loving God, loving neighbor. I think that's what Francis is doing today for us, and this is what Brian McLaren is doing as I read him today. And so I want to ask you a couple questions in closing. Uh, these are not questions you have to answer. but uh, You may not have read many creeds or confessions of faith in your life, but I was paid and obligated to do that for 40 years. And finally, the light, it, I'm a slow learner. But finally, the lights went out, went on. They had been out. (laughs) They'd been out for 40 years. And they went on, and I realized that almost every creed I'd ever read, every confession of faith I'd ever read begins with a statement about God or the Bible. They don't begin with love God and love neighbor. They don't begin with ethics. They don't begin with compassion. They don't begin with love for neighbor. They begin with theological ideas. Theological formulations. Complete grasp on a half-truth. And so this group writes one creed, and then this group writes another creed to fight this creed. And then you're forced to believe the creed. It's a deadly thing. So I I would really wonder if, I have often wondered if some of our confessions of creeds are not ways of avoiding the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because they teach us to think about ideas rather than to practice the love of Christ. By the way, I think that about some of our music that I sing sometime in church, I think some of that music is designed to avoid the hard stuff of the gospel. So I'm always glad when. We sing songs like I'm saying this morning that talk about living the Christian life and the call of the Christian life. I want to. Another thing that I've thought about is this, this doesn't cost you anything, uh, <laughs> but I have really wondered if you lay people don't get it brighter, quicker than theologians do. I, I've. I spent wonderful years in theological seminary, and I would not trade anything for my education. But sometimes I think we studied the wrong thing, Uh, that we should have been being taught how to love, how to be compassionate, how to be understanding, how to be embracing, how to be inclusive, how to be loving. And we were talking about the Council of Nicaea whether jesus was really god or really man or how the two natures fit together and nobody has any answers to it but they've <coughs> argued over it for years and years anyway i've this is not to praise you lay people but i sometimes think that people without a theological education who don't have to argue about the ideas get it quicker that may be true with law and medicine and everything else i don't know but uh I think it's true with theology. Well, anyway, I close. I ask you, are you getting it right at 50? They didn't get it right 500 years ago. They've gotten it right episodically. Are you getting it right? Does your worship awaken love of God and of neighbor? Is that your purpose on Sunday morning? Uh, A name that some of you know that is one of my saints is an African-American Baptist preacher by the name of Howard Thurman. You know that name, Howard Thurman? Great, great soul. Uh, Howard Thurman was pastor of a church out in San Francisco called the Church for All Peoples. You know that a wonderful name for a church, the Church for All Peoples. He was very much uh, a civil rights leader. Uh, Martin Luther King took in his Uh, handbag with him everywhere a copy of Howard Thurman's book Jesus and the Disinherited. If you've never read it, I recommend it to you. (coughs) Jesus and the Disinherited. Howard Thurman, for all of his emphasis on social issues, he said Sunday morning is to get people to love God and to love neighbor. Sunday morning worship is to draw people into the compassion conduit of the Christian faith. And then he said, they go out and they do whatever they do during the week, as doctors and lawyers and social workers and therapists and educators and everybody else. Well, does your worship awaken love of God and neighbor? And everybody said, amen. I ask you is your school of Christian education, are, you, are your classes, schools of love where people learn to become the most lo- loving version of themselves, where they learn to love themselves and love neighbor and love God. I think too often Christian education in our church is about, is about uh, intellectual ideas. I mean, we do the same thing in Sunday school sometimes, especially in my Sunday school class, that uh, we misdo in theological education. Um, And I guess I think that our classes ought to be more for formation than they are for information. And I think children's ministries often get that better than adult ministries do because they they thin slice a lot easier a lot quicker than adults do uh, and so they talk about forming the character of these kids um, by the way another book comes to mind David Brooks What's the road to character that's a great book um, well are your missions and outreach ministers helping your people smell of the sheep uh, Descend into the valley. Uh, we haven't had as much interaction here today as we've had yesterday, but you probably want to go home. I tell you, my uh, my definition of a Christian now <laughs> is uh, pretty simple. A Christian is somebody who takes seriously what Jesus of Nazareth took seriously. And what Jesus took seriously was loving neighbor and loving God. You know, when you get down to it, it's it's pretty, pretty simple. And really, really hard. Thanks so much.
3: Before we go from this place, anybody have a question or observation for Dr. Sheridan?
1: Yes. Who is that? Charles Bacon? Yes. You're always talking to me, Charles. are now because I'm in your line. I'm sorry. Pardon me? The, book of James. the Book of James.
4: Oh, the Book of James. Okay, yes. Right. Okay. Oh, uh, Bishop Spong yeah. said that that Luther was was uh, very dismissive about the Book of James Correct. and that he in fact called it a strawy epistle. Epistle, excuse me. Um, S-T-R-A-W hyphen Y and that um, but, but he, he didn't really explain anything about the background, about Luther's exact teachings about it, but that, that was a comment that Luther had made. Do you, are you familiar with that? And does it seem to be credible? And if so, what, what, what do you think Luther really meant by that?
1: Well, yeah, he, he's exactly right. I mean, Fong is exactly right. Uh, Luther called the book of James an epistle full of straw. And by that, he meant it didn't have much substance to it. Do you know the book of James? It's got a lot of substance to it. And it talks about living the Christian life. And what Luther didn't like about it was that it talked about works. It's that passage we read this morning in worship. Um, Faith without works is dead, the book of James says. And so people have had lots of trouble, and Luther had lots of trouble with the book of James. In fact, he really didn't want it in the canon. And he put it at the end of his New Testament canon. Um, I, I would want to move the book of James up in my canon. <laughs> uh, because I think it's that important. But no, that's exactly right. Uh, he just dismissed it. In fact, I meant to use that this morning in my sermon, and I left it out. But he dismissed it as a as an epistle full of straw, that because it didn't have good theological content in it and because it stressed works rather than grace. Yeah. I so saw other hands, I think, or maybe they were all pointing to Charlie. Yes. As a token Catholic in the group. <laughs>
2: And as you being a boy from the Mississippi Delta, you do the
1: Catholic Church proud. Thank you. Thank you. You got it right. I'm not, I mean to tell you, I'm not converting anytime soon. I think that would make headlines in the Baptist world. But I, I tell you, over the years, you know, the I'm, did I mention this yesterday? I don't know. Three of the people who have most influenced my life uh, are Thomas Merton and Henry Nowen and Richard Rohr. They're all Catholics. When I went to seminary in 1958, we didn't have any Catholics on our bibliography. We didn't read them and they didn't read us. You can't go to any seminary anywhere today, Catholic or Protestant. Without reading both, it, it's so wonderful that we jumped over that that fence. But I have I have a deep appreciation for much that is Catholic. Of course, I disagree with much that is Catholic, as they they disagree with me. I told uh, a group last night, or Chuck, I think we have a our church in Macon is right across the street from St. Joseph Catholic Church. I mean, just directly across the street. And uh, they had a priest there for years and years. His name was John Cuddy, Father John Cuddy. He was one of the sweetest, most gentle people I've ever known in my life. I taught a course for a long time called Religious Groups in America. And I would invite speakers from the various denominations into the class so that my students could see and hear and experience them rather than me talking about them. And on the final examination, I would always ask my class, if you were on your deathbed and you had to get somebody who had come to our class to pray for you the last time, whom would you want? John Cuddy always (laughs) won. He just walked off with it. Uh, He came over to our church and... talked about the Catholics one Wednesday night, and some people started calling it. I introduced him, and then I asked him questions, and um, they started calling it the Cuddy and Buddy Show. <laughs>
4: <laughs> Kelly? Buddy, we've been accused of being uh, high Baptist church, uh, Episcopal church, Massachusetts, A
1: <laughs> <laughs> Well, they're criticisms from the people that really criticize you, Kelly. I think. Um, no, I think I know generally what you're asking. I, one of the books that I want to write, and I've gotten my um, uh, computer, and I never will write, is "60 Years Among the Baptists." That's my 60 years among the. Um, the changes I have seen in 60 years among the Baptists is enormous. And one of the changes is, is your kind of church. Um, <laughs> I remember years ago, Kay and I were early married. We were going on a trip to North Carolina, and one of my heroes for a number of years has been Carlisle Marnie and Marnie was at uh, Myers Park Baptist Church in Charlotte. And I said, well, let's go over there and uh, we'll go to the evening service. So we scooted across North Carolina as fast as we could to get to the evening service and we drove up to church and there were no lights. (laughs) I said, Kay, these people don't have evening worship service. (laughs) We went into the church. Looking to see, I started to turn the lights on. <laughs> and, but it, that was the first time that I remember not seeing a Baptist church having an evening worship service. Baptist churches, by the way, there is no preacher in the world who can preach three times a week. Just no preacher in the world. And we made them do it for years and years and years. Sunday morning, Sunday night, uh, Wednesday evening for Bible study just just all, all of that is to say there have been enormous changes I think I think your church my our church and and there are more churches like yours than you may know in Baptist life right now there, there are a number of Baptist churches you can go to most states and find a church that uh, appreciates liturgy. Uh, and silence and worship the way you do it. Uh, and I think it's just been a wonderful thing because part of what has happened, it seems to me, is that some of us have gotten worn out with the words and that we did need some liturgy, some, uh, something other than words. We still use lots of words, of course, and we still use music and all the rest. But it is not for everybody. And there are a lot of Baptists for whom that doesn't speak at all. But there, I, I think there's a growing number of Baptists that, uh, that it does speak for. I don't know if you know about this, but one of the trends uh, about five years ago, five to 10 years ago, it was an amazing thing. There were young evangelicals, not just Baptists, but Baptists and others, who were moving away from evangelicalism into Eastern Orthodoxy. I I find that amazing because Eastern Orthodoxy is so structured, so liturgical. And these were people who had come, like many of us, had come through uh, the church and had an experience of grace, an evangelical experience of grace. But, But something about it needed more. So I think there are I think there are stages of faith. My my wife's one of my wife's favorite books is James Fowler's book, uh, "Stages of Faith." I think there are stages of faith that that people go through, and uh, probably many people are here today because that sounds that sounds sort of like a brag, or uh, that we found something nobody else has. I don't mean that, but I think I think people. I think some forms of religion wear out for us, and you need new forms. So my answer, of course, is that it's a wonderful thing. It's a good thing. Though I understand, I I don't come from the first Baptist church of Greenville. I come from the second Baptist church of Greenville. You know the difference in the first and the second? We drove pickups, and they drove (laughs) Buicks. We worked for them. They had cushions on their pews, and we thought the pew was for the punishment of the soul, and we didn't have that. They had choir robes, and we thought that was liberalism. That's that's a church I, I got into. My pastor had never graduated from college or anybody's seminary, and I loved him to death and have a great appreciation for it. So I, ha- I come from what's called the Sandy Creek section of Baptist life, the revivalistic, emotional. I love, I love those people. That's just not where I am now. And I think that a lot of people have made that move today. Thanks.
3: Thank you, buddy. I want to echo Leslie's earlier words of gratitude for our Adult Ministries Committee, all of the wonderful planning that they've done to make this possible. Uh, three thoughts, briefly. One, what got us to this particular kind of winter lecture series was and is the fact that this is our 50th year. We are working our way toward the weekend of May 6 and 7, when we will celebrate the 50th anniversary of the birthing of this church. At the birthing of this church, those of you who birthed this church invited Carlisle Marnie and L.D. Johnston come to Jackson and help you think about what it might mean to birth a distinctive Baptist church. In our 50th year we have brought to our church again one of those giant spirits in Baptist life. There's something that feels very right about starting out with L.D. Johnston and Carlisle Marney, helping us figure out who we were going to be and having Buddy Sheridan here on the eve of our 50th uh, to help us think about who we are and who we might be. That's one thing. Um, A a second thing um, is that... um, I wanted to say this yesterday evening, but you know, sometimes you just sort of hold things. But um, my life turned, my adult life turned on hearing Buddy Sheridan talk about his parents' conversion in a tent revival um, uh, when Eddie Martin pitched a tent at the corner of Highway 82 and 1 in the Mississippi Delta. Because I was 27, right out of seminary, and knew that the faith of my childhood was something that I loved but couldn't quite fully embrace anymore, but didn't know what else there was out there. It was one of the most fearful times in my life. Went to a church, sat in the congregation listened for the first time in my life to Walter Sheridan preach and heard him talk about his parents' conversion at a tent revival. And I remember driving home, being unable to speak. I wasn't weeping. I was just immobilized by this discovery that I can both bless the best of what is behind me and embrace the most challenging of what is in front of me. And I don't have to sacrifice one on the altar or the other. Which is not to say that it's been easy. It's been hard, and at times it gets harder. But it was that moment. That was the flight of the dove for me, because you talked about your parents' conversion at a tent revival in a respectful and tender and beautiful way. And somehow or another, it set me free to embrace the best of what was behind me and the most challenging of what was in front of me. So I need to say that publicly. And finally, thirdly, some of you may know that back in the day, Buddy and Kay Sheridan came this close to coming to Northminster for Buddy to be our pastor back in the late 70s. and. Um, In which case, y'all would be coming back on May 6th and 7th to be one of the former pastor families. Uh, Yeah, you can come back anyway. Um, So some of you may know that story. It was really close. So Buddy and Kay almost came here to plant their lives at Northminster. Uh, After this morning's sermon, as I was making my way up the wall over there, Brother Speed, who was a member of that search committee, called me over and said, See why we wanted him? (laughs) 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 And the answer is, yes, we do. Yes, we do. Uh, Many thanks for many things and to all of you. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.